I'm still trying to figure out how you ended up an actor at all. Right? Yeah, it just sort of found me. I had to do this play for English class in high school, The Crucible, about these girls in Puritan times who accuse people of being witches, but it's actually about communism. You know, it's pretty cool. I did that show in high school. It's an amazing play. Yeah, I nailed two of the Puritan girls and took Tichuba to prom, and I thought, hey, maybe this is what I'm supposed to be doing. Anyone who's surprised, raise your hands so I can judge you. That was a soundbite from the Theater People web series, which was created, written, directed, edited, and occasionally photographed by today's guest, Matt Anderson. Hello, and welcome to episode 105 of the Occasional Film Podcast, the occasional companion podcast to the Fast Cheap Movie Thoughts blog. I'm the blog's editor, John Gaspard. I've known Matt Anderson for too many years to calculate, certainly as a screenwriter and filmmaker, but occasionally as an actor. He even shows up as a waiter in my digital feature, Grown Men. What can I get you? I'm going to have the... Hey, don't even tell me. Mexican omelet, refried beans, hash browns, Tabasco, six-ounce steak, rare, extra onion. We actually made a breakfast special out of it. El desayuno peligroso. Breakfast to danger. Yeah, anybody ever order it? Uh, Not once. It's good to have you back. In our conversation today, Matt talks about the origins of the Theater People web series and takes us through the unique challenges he and his team faced bringing each of the four seasons to life. Where did Theater People come from? Uh, Desperation. Don't they all all come from desperation? I guess so. (laughs) What what was your desperate situation? Um, I had just not been working, or more specifically, I'd been working for a really long time writing. I was out in L.A., and was doing that thing where you write and you write and you write for free and nothing ever actually gets made. And I got to a point where I just kind of got tired of that, you know? After a while, you kind of would like to see something actually reach fruition. I just kind of hit this point where I felt like even if it was something just completely do-it-yourself, I just needed to see something I was writing actually get made without needing to, you know, pass through a thousand gatekeepers and sell to a studio in order to see it happen. So that was pretty much it. I just uh, felt like I wanted to make something truly independently, and I hooked up with a producer named Lydia Boulder, who was just getting out of stage management and was looking for a new kind of project, and the two of us just kind of started it up and we brought Chris Ballas on to produce with us, and the three of us just kind of made season one happen without any real sense of whether it would work or not. All that being said, why did you land on the idea of theater people, of that as your subject matter? Um, just because it seemed like subject matter that would never exhaust itself. Um, I'd been acting for, you know, 10 years prior to moving out to L.A., and I felt like the material was inexhaustible. Um, you know, if you've spent any time in theater, as I know you have, the, uh, the stories just come fast and furious. Like, you couldn't, you know, you couldn't forget enough to not have just a gold mine of good stories and, and good characters and experiences to draw from. And so that was kind of the idea behind why the 
why that world? And then the practical reason was I really just wanted to work with a lot of the people that I'd used to act with. I, I knew that I knew a ton of really good actors, and I felt like this this kind of story would lend, lend itself to a really large cast, which would allow me to work with a lot of actors, which was another thing that I wanted to do, get as many people involved as possible. And, uh, and I knew I had a lot of resources. I knew that you know, if I was going to be trying to do this completely out of pocket and as, as inexpensively as possible, playing to the fact that I knew a lot of people with theater spaces and knew a lot of people that would be willing to help me out and let us shoot in them for free. And yeah, all of that logistical stuff just made it seem like it was a, a really uh, economical choice of story as opposed to doing something like an office set you know sitcom where you know or a restaurant or any of the other kinds of locations that are just absolute nightmares to line up uh i felt like theaters were the ones that were going to be my best shot and this was something that could be primarily shot in theaters so you know i had that exact same thought when we made Ghostlight when i was hanging out at theater in the round and realized that the building was only actually in use really Friday, Saturday night, Sunday afternoon, the rehearsal room was used in the evening. Right. But there were more than 30 other rooms in that building that were generally never used and were kind of interesting. So being able to have that kind of access is just, you know, when you can't pay to close a place down, finding a restaurant or a store or an office, and me being me, I still wrote in plenty of restaurants and stores and offices, and then we just had to problem solve that. But at least we were able to, for the majority of what we needed, rely on friendly locations that were available to us for cheap. So as you were doing that, I, I remember that in addition to the episodes for season one, you also did, um, I don't know what you would quite call them, they were Theater People Minute, a minute. Uh, yeah, um, the little, yeah, the promo minutes, yeah. Why did you uh, think to do that? And they were all very funny, but if I'm remembering right, aren't they really completely divorced from your main stories? Yeah, yeah. Character-wise, there's no continuity, I don't think. Um, yeah, I don't think there's any continuity. We just did that because we knew that we needed to... This was This was my first... I had never done a web series before. I came from a background where I had done a bunch of shorts and I had done a feature and I had kind of done that sort of, you know, those modes. But I'd never done a, I'd never done something that I was going to need to be able to market and promote and find an audience for and raise awareness of and build a brand and all of that kind of stuff. And it was really sort of a learning as we were going sort of thing. So I knew that we somehow needed to get the idea that we were making a show out there to start building an audience and bringing people to our Facebook page even though we didn't have a show yet and you know getting people interested in when the show was going to launch and so the minutes were just a way for us to do something that was in the same spirit of the show you know mm -hmm. they were they were silent so they were things that we could shoot without needing sync sound they were short they were a minute long set to like old-timey silent movie music and they kind of had that feel to them um, so we could shoot them in three hours and edit them pretty quickly and just put them out there as something that people could watch in a minute and get a sense of what the sense of humor of the show was going to be. The first season was 10 episodes of eight to 10 minutes a piece and 
once we launched, we released one a week, um, every Friday for two and a half months, and uh, and people liked them, and we got you know a few hundred views every time we'd launch one, and you know, and then more people would find them as we released further episodes and would go back and catch up, and and it was good. It was really warm. Like people, what was most important to me was when we started it. You know, we didn't have any money, and literally nobody got paid, and everything was out of pocket. And everybody was basically signing on to this big question mark. You know, I when I approached them, I I think I told everybody, you know, I have no idea how this is going to turn out. Um, I just want to work. Lydia and I and Chris just want to work, and so we're going to do this thing. And I have no idea if it's going to be any good. I think it's going to be good because it's 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 resting on good writing and great performances and i feel like we can do that but i said i said two things i said one um it'll get done because that's a big thing you know a lot of projects a lot of independent projects that actors sign on to they work on them really hard for you know sometimes months on end and then they never see the light of day you know it's you're checking in with the with the producers like a year later and they're like yeah our editor's trying to fit it in between the other projects and we're not sure when it's going to get done and you know a lot of them just don't get finished so i I said this will get finished um and the other thing i said was you're going to like your work i said it'll get finished and you'll you'll like you in the final product and that's that's really all i can offer and we had a ton of actors that were willing to come on for this big question mark and just see what happened and uh and it worked out well and you know i think i probably also said i think it's going to be fun and i think it has been i think people have had a good time working on it which is as you know with an independent project always uh, again a question mark because these productions are not they're not cushy you know (laughs) they're Mm -hmm. a lot of work and it's a lot of uh sort of scrambling around and it's i mean making any kind of film is a ton of work and then for a web series especially one like this where i mean we ended up shooting 35 days i think over the course of a year we started in september and i think we finished in may or june and it was it was a really long process and we had all these great actors that were willing to come on for free and just kind of roll with it and you know take the gamble okay so series one is a success what pushed you into, uh, hey, let's do series two, and um, along with that, let's try to raise money via Kickstarter? When we finished season one, there was uh, there were a lot of questions about what we were going to do next, because it had turned out well, and people liked it, and people liked working on it, and, and it definitely did have that sense of, you know, we could go anywhere with it next. And I always had the same answer, which was, we'll do another season if we're able to pay people. Because for me... I think it's perfectly legitimate to ask actors to work for free for a project that you think is going to end up being a good project. Um, and I think actors are used to that. And, you know, they can always say no if they're not in a position to do it, which is totally fine. It's no different from theater that way. But my personal philosophy is you get to ask them to work for free once. And if you're going to ask them again, you have to be able to add something to the equation. Like, that's just that's just how I wanted to operate. I always said, you know, if if we can find a way to put some money together and actually pay people, even if it's just a stipend, then we would do a season two or look at doing a season two. About a year after we finished season one, we'd been doing well. Like, you know, we'd still see, I would say probably, 
Yeah, like 15 to 20 episode views a day, I think, if I'm remembering correctly. Like, just organically. Like, it was just kind of out there. People would hear about it and, you know, check it out. And uh, and that was day-to-day for a year. So, I mean, that was nice. You know, it was just small, grassroots, organic growth. And then about a year after we launched, American Theatre Magazine put our link on their Facebook page. And I still don't know. I think it was somebody local specifically who got it to them. I, I've never really heard what the provenance of it was. Um, and they didn't editorialize. They, did, they weren't like, hey, here's a great show. It was, it was literally just the link, if I recall correctly. And within a week, we had like hundreds, if not thousands, of views on top of the you know, probably a couple thousand that we'd had to that point. Um, my numbers might be wrong. It was a long time ago, but it was huge. It was a huge bump. A lot of people were checking us out because of that American theater push. And so we were getting all this feedback from all over the place, and we were seeing our numbers go up, and it was it was really exciting and totally unexpected. And that was the point where I said, you know, maybe if we're going to look at doing crowdsourcing, which we knew would have to be the next step if we were going to try and raise money, um, this would be the time to do it. And so Lydia and Chris and I kind of put together a, a Kickstarter campaign to try and raise uh, a budget for a second season, which was going to be about... Um, the first season was about independent theater. The second season was going to be about corporate theater. And so we put together a budget for that and put together a Kickstarter and ran the Kickstarter for a month. And it was absolutely unexpectedly exhausting. Like, it was... I, I had no idea. Like, I had talked to some people about Kickstarter to get ideas about, like, how to run it. I had talked to people who had run successful campaigns. I I was so completely unprepared for how difficult it was. It was, it was so much more than a full-time job. But it was successful. And in the end, we had actually a decent amount of money over the, the amount that we were planning to raise, which was great. It was all worth it. But, yeah, it was a real learning experience. Um, what would you say to someone thinking of starting a Kickstarter campaign now, even though it is a couple years later and things might be a little different, but what what were the big takeaways you got from that exhausting experience? Because I remember watching just how exhausting it was from the sidelines. Yeah. Well, you know, part of it was the way that we approached it, for sure. Like, I don't think every campaign has to be this way, but the way that we approached it, you know, you know me, like my strong suit is not going around and asking people to give me money. Um, That's just not anywhere near my comfort zone. And the only way I could really get comfortable with it was I said, if we're going to ask for money, I kind of want to sing for our supper. Like we, I'm only going to be comfortable doing this if we are giving something as well during the campaign. And so what, what we planned out was we released three videos a week for the month of the Kickstarter campaign. So every week, I think it was probably Monday, Wednesday, Friday, we would release a new video. We'd release one video that was like sourced from season one, so it would be like an outtakes reel, or it would be a super cut of every one of the dozens. I think we had 50-some speaking parts in season one. Every one of those actors saying one line or one word from one line. Just fun stuff like that. And then on another day in the week, we'd release what we called our Help Us Pay videos, where we introduced a member of our crew and kind of showed what they did. So help us pay Katie Driscoll. She's our production assistant. These are all the things she does. Help us pay our composer. This is Mike. 
you know, get to know them a little bit. And they were all just these little one-minute videos. And again, you know, it had, all of, all of them had the same spirit of the show. I mean, that was kind of the idea, was that, you know, everything was sort of a piece of of the project. So every time we released something, it was it was like another piece of theater people. And then the last video, the the last video each week would be something sort of more ambitious. So for one of them it was another theater people minute. For one of them it was uh, a scene between two of our season 1 characters, one of whom had gone to prison at the end of season 1. Because really, if you're going to try and do a really easy quick shoot, what you should do is write it to take place in a prison. That mm-hmm. is just smart producing. Can I can uh, I suggest you do that? Why don't you do it out of state or certainly a long ways away from your base? <laughs> you know, and and luckily we came up with that idea on our own and ended up in Iowa. Yeah, um, that makes sense. <laughs> <laughs> no, this is the thing. I mean, I'll tell you, like the I, I was going to say the unsung hero, but I I I think I'm still singing about her. So hopefully she's the sung hero. But like Lydia Boulder and her production magic like literally i would just write this stuff and then say hey lydia i need a prison <laughs> and then she would give me you know she'd give me that look and then she'd go get a prison so um so yeah the last video was always something like that was was sort of a bigger piece of of the puzzle and so we were releasing videos like every other day during the week and obviously you know producing anything is exhausting so producing at at that at that pace was was really difficult and that's on top of the fact that you have to be or you know i think you do i think this is probably a a constant you have to be constantly shepherding your campaign you know you have to be on you know we were facebook based because the twin cities social media wise is primarily facebook based so we were always on facebook you know we were always you know tracking where we were, getting the word out, spreading the news, you know, spreading the the news about new videos. That was actually a real upside to how we operated, you know, it allowed us to have something new to talk about all the time. So it wasn't a month of, hey, we're doing this thing, give us some money, and then 2 days later having to go back and be like, hey, we're still doing this thing, give us some money. Like we were able to have a conversation about each video, you know, instead it was like, hey, come meet Katie Driscoll. One minute video just hit our page, you know, and then we could focus on that. And then the ask for the campaign was in that video. So we didn't have to kind of be walking around hat in hand all the time. We you could gave actually, them a reason to keep coming back. Exactly. And something which is the hardest thing about. to do. Yeah. 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 And it was, yeah, it was, it was absolutely exhausting. And then honestly, and this was advice that was given to me by somebody who, uh, who had done a successful campaign, you're emailing literally everyone that you've ever had an email address for. And you're Facebook messaging every single Facebook friend you have that you can bring yourself to to ask for money from. And, you know, that's just kind of how it works. And it's hugely uncomfortable if you're not sort of constitutionally built for that, which I'm really, really not. But... Uh, really effective because if people know like especially with a personal ask and you know you know me surprise surprise I couldn't just send a form letter like I needed to make a personal reach and you know check in and but once people it was really rare frankly once you reached out to somebody for somebody not 
to contribute. I mean, and it might not have been much. It might have been five bucks, but that's kind of what we wanted. You know, we kind of, we didn't, we weren't angling for big ticket donors. We didn't feel like that's how our show operated. You know, the the show for us was really about community and showing that if you make something out of a community, that the community will be there to support it. And so the idea, I think in the end, I think our average donation was something around 20 bucks, which meant we had a lot of people who gave five bucks and we had a lot of people who gave more and it averaged out to uh, a really nice, manageable, reasonable uh, average, which, which I was really pleased with. So you exceeded your goal and with the leftover money thought, oh, what the heck, rather than do season two, let's do season two and three. Yeah, um, well, and that was that was a surprise that came out of the campaign. So midway through the campaign, I got contacted by Graydon Royce, who was the Minneapolis Star Tribune theater critic, who I'd met, I think, in passing. Just sent me an email, I think, via Facebook and said, hey, I really love the show. I saw that you're doing the Kickstarter. I hope it's going well. Uh, I had an idea for season two, if you'd be interested to talk about it. And... I said, well, I think I know what season two is going to be, but you know, I'm never going to turn down an idea. Let's let's get together and talk. And we met for coffee, and I just loved his idea. It was just this really fantastic idea. He said, I have this house that my brother and I are renovating. It's the it's our old family home, and it's in Mound, Minnesota, about 40 minutes west of the cities. And we were out there working last weekend, and it just occurred to me that it might be really funny to have Jamie, the ridiculous uh, avant-garde director from season one, if he decided to do a site-specific show in this, you know, sort of crazy, rundown farmhouse in the middle of nowhere. And then we started spitballing ideas, and I was like, yeah, maybe, you know, what if he, what if he plans it in the fall? But by the time they do the show, it's winter. And so now it's winter in the middle of nowhere in Minnesota. And nobody is aware of what they're getting into. And, and you know, it just kind of spirals out of control. And I, I just fell in love with the idea. And so we, we took a look at the numbers and the money that we'd raised. And, you know, we'd planned for a month-long shoot for, for our big season, for our corporate season. And I said, I feel like we could shoot season two if we really scale it back and I shoot it myself so we don't have to worry about bringing in a bunch of crew kind of do it similar to season one we did bring in a godsend uh, Mickey Richardson who did sound and lights for us which was beyond I mean it wouldn't have happened without Mickey but otherwise we shot it pretty much like we shot season one except it was all in one location so we could go out there on a Friday night and basically shoot Friday night, all day Saturday, all day Sunday for three weekends. And we ended up shooting in, you know, what is that, seven and a half days? Uh, mm -hmm. What was originally going to be a shorter season and ended up just being a fewer number of episodes, but the episodes were longer. So it still ended up being, I think, about a 90-minute season. So basically, and it's, it's, and it's one story as opposed to the A story and the B story, it's... It's basically a, like a feature film cut up into, you know, six episodes. The first thought was, oh, well, maybe that'll be season three. But I knew that this one was going to have to play differently. I knew it wasn't going to have the A story and the B story. I'd had this idea about doing it in black and white because Jamie, our director character, is very much the sort of person who would think of himself as being Ingmar Bergman and that this would be sort of like, you know, the season would sort of be from his 
perspective and so it allowed us to shoot in black and white which gave us a lot of leeway because you can shoot faster in black and white than you can when you're shooting in color so that really helped us speed up yeah Yeah. and you know winter in minnesota in black and white like if you're trying to make something look stark desolate and foreboding black and white is the way to go and so i said if we're going to do it that way it's got to be season two because if we have a season one that's in color and there's an a story and a b story and it's 10 episodes long and then we have season two and it's in color and there's an a story and a b story and it's 10 episodes long that's the show like we've established our format for the show but i said if we sneak this one in between as a six episode thing in black and white that's kind of the the weird you know offshoot i said then it kind of opens up the possibilities for the show then we've built ourselves some flexibility then you know we can kind of do anything if we really liked that prison location and want to do an entire season in a prison you know that could be season four you know we did not do that because that would have been a terrible idea but it gave us the flexibility it just opened up the it opened up the format to have it be the second season so we we actually did shoot season three first and then while we were wrapping up season three we started the weekend shoots on season two so i think we shot season three in december of that year and started and shot season two on the weekends in January, when we were done with everything pretty much by the end of January. Okay, so finish season two, finish season three. What was it that happened that made season four happen? So we did season two. Season two was a really interesting experience. Um, honestly, and and I, I've honestly, I have so much love for all of the seasons of the show. Season two is the, is the, is the season that if I were to stumble on it just by accident online, it's the season that I would like the most. I'm a film guy. Like, so like the faux Bergman thing and the like ridiculous fake British director. And, you know, there's a faulty towers aspect to it. Like it just, it, 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 it really speaks very directly to the stuff that I enjoy, but it was a huge break from our format and it really threw a lot of people and we saw our views go down. Like from where we were in season one, it wasn't, it wasn't the same level of enthusiasm. The people who liked it, the people who who really responded to it liked it better absolutely like the passion index was much higher for it Um, but they were also longer episodes and as with anything on the internet as you increase your episode length you're going to reduce the number of people who are just going to click in and watch on a whim you know instead of seven to ten minutes now our episodes were 12 to 17 minutes which sounds like not a ton more but it's like 50% 50% longer. And so like that was a dissuading factor for a portion of our audience. And and we definitely had people come up to us and say, "Hey, I saw season 2. That's 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 really weird, you know. That's season 3 is going to be be like season 1 though, right? Like you're going to go back to that." Like there were definitely some people who really missed the sitcom format of it. And that was I don't know, I, it wasn't surprising, I guess, but it was it was a little disappointing to me just because i loved it so much um and i felt like it was such an interesting step forward for the show but i like i say i I understand why it happened and it made a lot of sense to me but what was really great was because of the nature of it because i felt like it was something unique i felt like it might have it might have some legs on the film festival circuit which i'd never really considered doing with this show. I'd been burnt out on the film festival circuit pretty badly just doing short films. Like my experience was pretty much always you spend a lot of time submitting it to a film festival, your your work, whatever it is, and 
you pay your 50 bucks and then two months later you get a letter saying how happy they are that you paid your 50 bucks but they just didn't have a place for you and then you do it all over again and so i'd kind of i'd kind of moved past that you know it was not something i had anticipated but i started looking around and i started seeing that more film festivals were having sidebars for web series and i thought you know there's not going to be a lot of black and white Bergman-esque comedy web series out there, might as well, you know, throw our hat into the ring. And so I submitted to a few festivals and was really surprised that we really started doing well. Like we got into we got into a really high percentage of the festivals that we applied to. I mean I feel like on average if you apply to if you're applying to film festivals, I feel like you've got a really good uh, hit to miss ratio if you're getting into 10 to 20 percent mm-hmm. yeah right and we got into probably two-thirds or more of the festivals that we applied to which was really great because it meant that first of all the show was getting out there you know it was it was finding audiences in a different way than i'd ever expected it to and also it was just really validating you know because because when you do see your numbers drop like that and you know that it's not really playing for everybody you start to kind of second guess yourself a little bit and it was it was really validating to have you know, a curated festival come along and say, yeah, we really want to show your, we want to show your show. And then we, we won some awards and our cast was nominated for best ensemble cast at the New York City Web Fest, which is one of the big, biggest web fests in the country, um, if not the biggest. And so like we started having that reaction. It made a lot more people aware of the show and it's always difficult to get people to hit the play button and having that kind of legitimacy bestowed on you um, by people who aren't friends of yours, who aren't people who are in the show, really helped us build an audience. So that was, that was kind of step one toward raising the profile of the show. Uh, and then we did season three. We released season three later that year, once I was done editing it, obviously. And right before season three launched, Minnesota Public Radio, uh, Marianne Combs did a piece on the show, a really great piece, which, by the way, I was completely unprepared for. I thought that was going to be, I thought that was going to be a train wreck. I met with her thinking that we were going to meet to talk about doing a piece, and then we sat down and she pulled out a microphone, and I... (laughs) I was not, like, I hadn't been doing any PR for the show for, like, six months because I'd been editing. I had no talking points. I had, like, I was totally unprepared. And that woman is a genius. And the piece that she put together was fantastic. Like, it was this really great piece. Like, she integrated some fantastic clips from it. And it played on NPR one morning uh, right around the time we were launching season three. And that same day... I got a Facebook message from a guy, uh, a local guy in town named George, who said, I heard the piece on the radio this morning, and I'm working with a couple of guys to put together a new social media content platform, and it's going to be geared specifically toward independent web content, and it sounds like we should sit down and talk. So we did. We sat down and had a cup of coffee and kind of talked about what their plans were. And yeah, over the course of a few months, we talked about because I'd had the same I'd had the same response to after after we were done with seasons two and three. Again, people would start asking, are you going to do a season four? And I had the same response. I said, yeah, we'll do it if we can pay people more because we were finally able to pay people for seasons two and three. 
but I mean, it was a pittance. I mean, I think everybody, I think all the actors in seasons two and three made $100 for the project. You know, whether it was people who were shooting for a month on season three or people who were living in a freezing farmhouse for three weekends for season two, a uh, hundred bucks for the project, not a lot. And I said, if we're going to move forward, same situation. We'll do it if we can pay people more, if we can actually pay a day rate instead of a stipend. <laughs> and so in talking with, uh, with these guys who are putting together this platform that's called Sika TV, they said, you know, we're going to be acquiring a lot of shows, like dozens of shows, but we also are interested in producing a handful of original shows, original seasons of shows. And... Theater People was the first one that they that they asked, I believe, and they said, you know, would you be interested in, you know, if we could license the first three seasons for our site, we could produce, we could help finance a, a fourth season. And, you know, it's one of those things that comes up and you never think it's actually going to pay off because you hear, you know, you these ideas float around all the time and most of the time they don't come through. And these guys absolutely came through and you know uh by june or july we had a deal in place for them to produce the fourth season of theater people with a budget of about five times what we had made uh season two and season three for so a significant step up in terms of what we were able to work with for for a budget so with season four though you're going with uh, longer episodes. Yes, yeah, they wanted, uh, they were looking for something more around the 15 minute mark, like the 15 to 20 minute mark, and most of our episodes for season four are about 15. Which is closer to the traditional 22 minutes of a standard sitcom. Yeah, and that was, that was, that was actually the appeal for me, like when we got our, when we got our deal put down, you know, and they said, you know, we'd like your episodes to be somewhere between 15 and 20 minutes. Um, there was sort of a moment of creative well, it turned out to be hubris on my part because I went, hey, we get to make a sitcom. That's great. Like, that's really exciting. Like, this is a terrific creative challenge. That was really short-sighted of me in that it meant that now we were going to be dealing with, instead of 150 pages of content, 200 pages of content, which is a lot more content. Now, let's just back and up and do the math on that. You're saying... Up. 200 pages of content is more content than 150 pages <laughs> I'm, of content. I'm, I don't have the numbers in front of me, but we worked it out, and 200, it turns out, is a significant percentage more than 150. Hmm. I'm going to have to take your word um, for that. And we had budgeted for, you know, more or less the the season three, the uh, season, yeah, like the season three model, like a 10 to 15 minute episode. And so we had budgeted in terms of both money and in terms of schedule for that for that kind of a production and now as excited as i was about it i very quickly realized um yeah we signed on for you know suddenly 25 percent more show and and that then became the challenge for season four was how do we develop it in such a way um from a production point of view that we can with this budget that we've got which was primarily Sika put up the the lion's share of the budget and then we raised the rest of it from individual investors and then it was figuring out okay well how do we do this show right how do we do this show in a way that we are compensating people the way that we'd like to be compensating them and we're getting done the work that we need to get done and the show is a legitimate step up from what we've done before like if we do a show at this new budget level 
for what yeah, and it ends up looking like what we did for 20% of this budget previously, that's going to kind of be a failure. <laughs> like it should look better. It should look like uh, a, a marked step up from what we've been doing before. Like this is our chance to show what we can do with more resources. And so that was that was the goal with this one was to make a show that really represents an advance on what we've been able to do previously. And how did you do that? What were the key things you you focused on to, to make that happen? From a development point of view, the real key was embracing it as a sitcom. And by that I mean the show had always been sort of rangy in a way that I really like. But if you watch an episode of Theater People from season, aside from season two, which was its own beast, from seasons one or three, we're all over the place. Like an episode will hop from an apartment to a theater to a street to another theater to an office. And we needed to find a way to embrace the idea of sort of a single set sitcom. You know, it was never going to be a single set, but, you know, if you watch a sitcom and especially like the the shows that I really love, like I'm a huge fan of of Community. Community is a little rangy, but the majority of an episode of Community takes place in the study room. Cheers is in the bar. You know, most of Seinfeld is in Seinfeld's apartment. It's not that you never mm-hmm. go outside. It's just that the majority of what you're doing takes place in one location. And we'd never done that before. And so for season four, what we decided was we are going to embrace this idea of being a real sitcom and as with the other seasons, we wanted to look at a different kind of theater. So season one had been independent theater, season two was site-specific theater, season three was corporate theater, and for season four, I felt like because we were looking at being on a new platform that I felt was probably going to want to be appealing to like college kids, like 20-somethings, like a younger audience than we had necessarily been skewing toward in our previous seasons i felt like youth outreach theater was was the way to go i had been a member of a youth outreach theater in high school for a year and a half and it was a huge part of my sort of getting into theater and i knew that the material was there as well and it put us in a position where we could be dealing with a younger cast than we'd had before you know a lot of 20 somethings our youngest principal cast member literally started college the day of our read-through and it also meant that we could base out of basically their their headquarters their homeroom which is this you know supposed to be a room in this college and it turns out to be the costume locker in the basement but it allowed us to shoot probably 80 percent of what we were doing in this one controlled room which really was the only way that we were going to be able to crank out the amount of material we needed to uh, on the t- on the schedule that we had, there. So you had a different aesthetic going for season four. Tell me a little bit about that. Um, yeah. Well, the aesthetic was kind of how you know I would have brought Amber back on if I could have um, to shoot season four as well. But logistically, knowing that we were going to have to be moving as fast as we were, we had a nine-person principal cast, which meant scheduling was already going to be really difficult. And she is a busy shooter. And it just seemed like it was going to be logistically impossible. And then on top of that, most of our shooting was going to be taking place in this little tiny room where every extra body really makes a difference. And so we kind of were in a position where we had to run lean again, which is what we're used to. You know, we've never had a we've never had a crew of more than four or five people, but we had to keep to that again. And it just made sense for for me to to operate. I was feeling comfortable enough with. Uh, 
I was I was pleased with how season two looked, having somebody who was lighting it for me in particular being important. And Mickey was back. He actually produced season four, and he was also our gaffer and our lighter, our, our all-around go-to tech equipment guy. And again, like this season wouldn't have happened without him being there. You have to have somebody on set, John, who knows what they're doing. <laughs> <laughs> This is what I found. You, you might only need one. No, you need two, because you also need a sound guy. And we had Nathaniel, who did the sound for season three for us. But you have to have those two people who know what they're doing. As Kevin Costner, I think, would tell you. <laughs> uh-huh. As long as you've got people around you who know what they're doing, you can do a pretty good job. <laughs> yes. And that was, so that was the situation. I felt comfortable enough. I felt comfortable enough shooting it myself because we were going to adopt this aesthetic of having it be handheld. Everything that's down in the room is handheld. And that was, you know, largely born out of just necessity. Like we traditionally, I get absolutely nothing usable from the first day of shooting. This has just always been my experience. I should plan on it and I still never do. You should start on day two then. Duh. Right? (laughs) Give everybody a day off. No, season two, we had to be up and running on day one, but usually there's a bit of a learning curve going into it. And the learning curve with season four was we were going to shoot. I was planning on having everything locked down just because it takes a little bit of the responsibility off of me to be able to actually operate the camera. Mm -hmm. But we tried shooting in that room on a tripod and it was just not going to be tenable. We we just weren't going to be able to move fast enough. Like every time we moved, it it required a different lighting setup and there frankly wasn't enough room in the room to have a full tripod set up. I mean, for a lot of different reasons, it just really quickly made sense that, okay, we're going to do sort of a, you know, I'd been watching a lot of Veep. So like when I sat down to write season four, I was looking for good inspiration. I'd already stolen everything I could from Community for seasons two and three. So I needed something new. So I sat down and I watched Veep uh, and Silicon Valley, both of which are fantastic. And the Veep aesthetic, the sort of run and gun, mm-hmm. let that be part of it, you know, that that sort of fly on the wall feeling. And, you know, we were able to emulate that. We didn't go so far into it that it ever feels documentary, but it does definitely have a looseness. It definitely had, it, it gave us the flexibility to have less of a restrictive lighting setup so we could sort of light the room and just let the camera go where the camera needed to go as much as possible and that just meant that we were able to shoot a lot faster than we would be able to do and because it was looser like that i felt more comfortable operating because it didn't need to look composed and perfect it needed to just have the right energy and you know basically be pointing at the right people at the right time and as long as i knew who i needed on camera when i needed them on camera it allowed me to operate pretty quickly it worked out really well and you know the upside to having a good director of photography is that you have a good director of photography the downside of having another a a, a separate director of photography is that that's another layer of communication and while i would say on most productions it's absolutely worth that on this one, because we were going to need to be moving as quickly as we were, it was really helpful for me to just be able to know what I needed to get and get it, as opposed to having to try and effectively convey that information to somebody else who was going to have to execute it. And then probably have to go and watch it myself on a monitor to make sure that it was what I wanted. You know what I mean? It's it's right. in order to move fast, and we, we needed to move fast. Uh, 
it just made more sense for me to do it. And I'm, I'm pleased with the results. If, if we had had a better director of photography, I have no doubt that they would have brought another level of production quality to it. Like it would have been another, another step up on that front, but we'd still be shooting. <laughs> <laughs> well, then you wouldn't be able to talk to me right now. That's true. Busy. I'd be in the middle of a shoot and dealing with mass mutiny on the part of all of my cast and crew, I have no doubt. Most likely. So you've pretty much covered most of the pro side of when it comes to you being the writer, director, shooter, editor. Yeah. For the most part. Yeah. The pro is the pro is if you're doing it all, you know that you're going to be there and you can prioritize the work in a way that you're not going to be able to afford to have other people prioritize the work. You know, I do always bring on, I think, I think the most important crew position in a lot of ways is your sound recordist. You know, I remember, did you ever, uh, you remember in the company of men? Yeah. God, that movie, I remember watching the DVD of it. So that was Neil Labute's first movie. And I will always remember this. So he was talking about how his sets don't look very good, which they don't. Like if you look at a shot in that movie, it looks, it looks like what it is. It looks pretty amateur. But he said his belief, and I don't know where he picked it up or if it, whatever, it stuck with me forever. He said people will accept a movie that looks like crap as, as being an aesthetic. As long as it's consistent, they will absolutely watch a movie no matter what it looks like and just assume that that's an intentional choice. No one will watch a movie with bad sound because that's never a choice. Yeah. It's all it's always a deal breaker. And so I use uh, the guy that I use his name is Nathaniel and Nathaniel's fantastic. Nathaniel recorded a lot of season 3 for us and that was really important to have a sound recordist and then he also mixes for us which is great because he he can record in such a way that he knows what he needs when he gets to the mixing part of the process. But yeah, then you're in a position where, you know, Nathaniel's got a job, you know, he's got, he's got other projects and he's got, you know, he's got other things that potentially are going to be prioritized over this. He does a really great job of prioritizing us and of, of hitting the deadlines that we need. And I, I'm not really sure how he does it, but it's really difficult to ask that of people when you're not able to pay them something commensurate to what they're making on, on a corporate project or on, or on their day job doing this. So the nice thing about doing it yourself is you're personally driven to get it done and to do it as well as it can be done. And you are able to prioritize it ahead of kind of everything else because that's just your role. You know, your job is to kind of make it the most important thing in your world while you're doing it. That's all well and good, but what's the downside of wearing all those hats? Um, it will, it'll, it'll, it'll kill you. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I, I'm not, I'm not done yet, John, which is why we're able to have this conversation. Uh, it's way too much. I mean, honestly, like it, this has, I have overreached, um, uh, which is good. That's how you know how much, how much you can reach, you know, you overreach and then you go, I won't do that that way again. But that is the position that I, that I've put myself in. It was just, it was a lot. It was shooting, you know, like I say, a 200-page script over the course of... We started in the middle of September. I was still doing pickup shoots in February. So again, I'm not, I'm not a math guy, but that's, you know, at least mm -hmm. two or three months. How did they... Tell, tell them how they can seek out Sika. Uh, Sika. So Sika is amazing. Um, Sika, and this is what I loved about Sika from the first time I heard about what they were trying to do. When I started making a web series... I had never seen 
a web series. I might have stumbled across something, but it was probably something pretty high profile like Funny or Die. The problem is with web series is they're just out there, but unless you know that they're out there, it's like a cool club, you know? You only know it's there if you already know it's there, which is neat for a cool club, but not neat for a web series that you would actually like people to find. And what Sika's whole mission was, was let's make a hub for quality, independent web content so that people can just go to one place and find 50, 60, 70, 100 shows and find what they like. You know, there's no more searching around. When I started when I started season one of Theater People, it was hard to figure out even what to watch to know what to emulate, you know, because unless you knew what to Google, like, and you could Google, like, best web series out there, but you're going to get, like, five or six different shows and there's a hundred shows there, you know at the time there was probably already hundreds of shows out there so Sika's whole model was let's make a place where you can find a lot of great shows of a lot of different types from all over the world in one place watch them easily it's free it's subscription free there's the opportunity to to contribute to a show you can tip a show after you watch an episode there's a little button if you want to kick in a buck or three bucks or however much you want to kick in and that money goes largely like generously largely to the content creators um, I forget what the actual split is but it is a generous split in favor of content creators because they want content creators to want to be on Sika you know the, the only way this works for them is if they've got people who want to have their stuff on the platform and so they have to make it attractive also they're just really great guys and I don't think they want to screw anybody over but like they need to have a good platform in place in order to have the kind of content that's going to make their platform successful. And I have found some fantastic stuff on there. Like, I am, I feel very, very privileged to be airing alongside some of the stuff that they have on there. And I know that as they move forward, you know, the goal is going to be to continue to find that really high quality stuff and they're going out to festivals and they're getting the stuff that's winning the awards at festivals and they're you know they're really doing a great job of finding the kind of content that that is sort of ready for prime time you know in in the web series landscape and it's it's great so i'm going to wrap this up with a uh, the closest thing to a barbara walters question that i would ever ask anybody which is yeah. uh, i don't remember how many years ago young matt anderson drove home from Los Angeles with his new rebel camera with the idea of creating <laughs> theater people or something like that. Pretty close to that. Yeah. What would you want to say to him if you could just give him a call? Because you've been through quite a bit here. Um, what what have you walked away with that, <laughs> that would be helpful for him or anybody else starting something that turns out to be quite this massive? Um, you know, honestly, it would be a lot of, and I, I say this I've been really fortunate. A lot of it would be validation of the ideas that I had coming into it. There have absolutely been discoveries. There have been so many, so many, so many discoveries. I'm actually teaching a course called Web Series 101 right now. Like there is so much knowledge that I have just had to find via trial and error over the last five years that it's absolutely, I'm, st I'm still learning all the time. You know, you learn how to make the show, you learn how to put the show out there, you learn how to find an audience, you learn how to promote it, you learn how Facebook works if you want to, you know, get the word out to more people, you you know, like all of that stuff. But honestly, I think the most important thing that I would say would be the general idea that I had, which was that if you've got good material and great actors, that is all you need. 
Like, I really... And direct them. That's what you have to do. You have to direct them. That actually is also super important because actors are supposed to be working with a director. You know, the director is the one who has... who knows how everything fits together. And I think part of the reason that I'm as proud of our casts and all of our casts, like every season, um, including season four, which has a ton of young actors and a ton of actors... For the first time, I'm dealing with a cast where I haven't worked with most of the principal actors before because I've been working with actors that I used to act with 10, 15 years ago. And and a bunch of them are still around and a bunch of them are still in the show. But for this, you know, youth outreach theater, we needed, we needed people who could pass as college students. And so we had to go out and find them. And this cast is as fantastic as any we've had. And that's why the show works. Like, it really is. And, you know, different shows are different. Some shows are effects-driven. Some shows are, you know, location-driven. Some shows, you know, there's lots of things that, that draw people into a show. But for this show, the key has always been having a really great ensemble. You know, having an ensemble that doesn't seem like they're doing an amateur project. You know, having an ensemble that is delivering work that is on par with something that you would see on broadcast television. And I really think that we have that. Like, I, I believe that that is why the show has traveled as well as it has. I believe that's why it's played the festivals that it's ha- that it has. I think that's why, that's why Sika wanted to come on and produce a fourth season. Like, and that was, that was always the idea was mm-hmm. the Twin Cities have this amazing pool of actors and now you know specifically I'm talking about where I'm making stuff I'm making stuff in Minneapolis like what we have is this fantastic deep pool of acting talent and so I built a show around it and the show works because that's the engine and these guys are this cast is fantastic like and that's what I would say would be just continue to have faith in the idea that if you've got good writing and great actors you don't need to be a great camera person. You don't need to have all the technical stuff down. You don't need to have like you don't need to you don't need to have a jib arm. You don't need the equipment that you don't know how to use. You don't need a 10-person crew. Like this show is about really good actors delivering hopefully really good dialogue in a way that is compelling and that tells a story from start to finish. And I think that that has borne itself out as being a really viable method and the nice thing is is you don't need to do that in a studio you know what I mean you don't need to do that with a million dollars behind you you can you can do it effectively on the scale that we've been doing it that's the best thing that I could say like if I was whether I was talking to myself or anybody else especially in Minneapolis making stuff that would be what I would say was find really great actors and then work with them and trust them because that's that's the goal that's that's why I like watching the show I have to go write that review of Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead. I've already got the headline. If only. I thought you liked that show. It's okay. How do you pass up a headline like that? Have fun today. Thanks to Matt Anderson for chatting with me about creating the Theater People web series, which you can find online at SikaTV.com. That's S-E-E-K-T-V.com. Check the show notes for a direct link to all four seasons. If you like this interview, you can find lots more just like it on the Fast Cheap Movie Thoughts blog. Plus, more interviews can be found in my books, Fast, Cheap, and Under Control, 
Lessons Learned from the Greatest Low-Budget Movies of All Time, and its companion book of interviews with screenwriters called Fast, Cheap, and Written That Way. Both books can be found on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Kobo, Google, and Apple Books. And while you're there, check out my mystery series of novels about magician Eli Marks and the scrapes he gets into. The entire series, starting with The Ambitious Card, can be found on all online platforms in paperback, hardcover, ebook, and audiobook formats. Well, that's it for episode 105 of the Occasional Film Podcast, produced at Grass Lake Studios. Original music by Andy Morantz. Thanks for tuning in, and we'll see you occasionally.